here uh, in that Creve Hall is in a different sermon series uh, than y'all are here at East, so you're just going to have to go along with the Creve Hall ride uh, right now. Uh, but honestly, when these, these sorts of mo- mornings happen, um, just have to c- continually remind ourselves, uh, this isn't a mistake. Brant's sick. I, I'm here. I found that out yesterday. But for some reason, the Lord wants us here together to be in this text together. So would you, would you believe that with me this morning as we open up the word and as we get ready uh, to partake of communion? So Creve Hall is in a series called The Gospel Changes Everything right now, Okay. And I'm arguing, we're, we're working through the idea, the reality that no aspect of our lives individually or corporately as a church is unaffected by what has happened for us in Christ Jesus. So every aspect of your life, not one part of it is unaffected by the gospel. So we've been talking about, first and foremost, the gospel gives us a new identity because we're reconciled to God, which we celebrate at communion that we have this new relationship as being reconciled to him. We have this new reconciled identity that Paul calls being an ambassador of King Jesus and his kingdom. We're ambassadors of Christ now. We are sons and daughters. So we have a new identity. We also have a new family. Uh, We're brought into a new family in Christ. Scripture says things like we're given a new heart and we're given a new spirit. So there's some outward things that change. We have a new family, a new identity, but we also have this inward change. We've been given this new heart, this new spirit, so that we can live into that new identity. Because I can't live like a son or a daughter if I don't have that spirit. So this morning, what we're going to talk about is how the gospel changes our future. All right? That because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ this morning, you have a new, secure future because of Jesus. So I'm going to read this. This is from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5, and then 22 through 27. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be... No more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne has said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. In verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful and deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me pray for us real quick. Lord, Apply this wood to our hearts. Um, Yeah, guide me and guide my mouth, uh, my tongue, that I would only say what you want me to say uh, and nothing more and nothing less. And minister to our hearts with this profound truth uh, of this future day uh, that your table guarantees. And we ask this in your name. Amen. It's hot in here, (laughs) y'all. 
All right, so we're going to get a little hotter in here, all right? I want to start by asking you this question, because uh, we have to kind of start here, because this is all about the future, right? What we just read. Um, what is your view of the future? And I would argue that every one of us has one, whether you can articulate it or not, whether it's conscious and you live with an awareness of it or not, every single one of us in here has some working view, belief about the future, right? We have phrases like glass half full or glass half empty sort of people. That has usually to do with the future. Every one of us has some way that we see or we believe the future is going to be, and I want, to, I want us to kind of operate this morning out of this premise. Whatever you believe about the future, it inevitably shapes how you live in the present. Whatever you think about the future, whatever you believe about the future, whatever you hope about the future, whatever you fear about the future, it shapes how you live in the present. That's why we have phrases like living for the weekend, right? There's this future out there called the weekend, and if I can just get through the week, then the weekend will come. That's me saying I have a hope in the future of the weekend. So if the future is bleak, if I have that view, then the present is just kind of a slog to get through or a time to just survive or, you know, Scripture also says if the future, if what we just read is not true, hey, eat, drink, for tomorrow you die. Future or present is just a time to seek my pleasure. But if the future has good prospects, maybe that makes you hopeful right? You anticipate it. Maybe it motivates you to work hard or even kind of lean into the challenges that you're facing because you know that what you're experiencing today, there's something out there. There's some future out there that's going to be better than this. What you believe about the future shapes how you and I live in the present. Now, growing up, I don't know about you. I think it's probably safe to say for all of us growing up, there was always a lot of hope and fear around the future. I experienced a lot of that as a child. There's a lot of hope and anticipation, but also a lot of fear and trepidation around the future. But one thing was true, this is true, really true about young people. Young people tend to be more hopeful about the future. The older you get, they tend to be more fearful about the future, but we're all focused on the future way more than we realize it. There's a strong pull inside of us for everything to be about the future, about what's next, about what's about to be. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I find myself, I'm never quite satisfied, even when I'm satisfied, even when I get the thing that I hope for, there's just this kind of haunting fear that, yeah, but what's next, right? One of my good, I had a good friend who actually lives over here on the east side who was an author he wrote a novel at a very, very young age, got a lot of critical acclaim, and uh, actually really struggled eventually with depression. And I remember talking with him about, like, man, you, you did it. Like, you, you wrote, an, wrote a novel at a very early age. And he said, yeah. He said, but in Nashville, you're only as good as what you're about to do. It's not about what you've done. It's not about what you've accomplished. It's about what you're about to do. We're never satisfied, we're never secure, we're always grasping. I was watching Star Wars with my boys earlier this week and that scene where Yoda is, you know, Luke is trying to fast track his way to being a Jedi and Yoda, you know, he says to him, I won't do my Yoda voice. Should I do my Yoda voice? This one, a long time I have watched, right? 
All his life he looked away to the future, to the horizon, never his mind on where he was. Hmm? <laughs> what he was doing, right? We're always thinking about the future. And whatever we believe about the future shapes how we live in the present. I would love for us to consider this morning as we get into this text that this longing for the future, this gravitational pull that we feel, this sense of hope for things to be beyond where they are, it has its root in this chapter of the Bible, what we've just read. The scripture says that God has, says this in Ecclesiastes 3, set eternity in the heart of man. Every single one of us, he's put this desire for eternity in our hearts. And the truth is, is that you and I, we carry around that hope and that longing and that desire around with us consciously or subconsciously every single minute of every single day. That our hearts, if you're a believer this morning, even if you're not, our hearts are ultimately waiting on this day in Revelation 21. This is what our hearts' true hopes are actually about. And Proverbs 13, 12 says this, that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred, when I'm waiting on what I hope for, I experience this degree of heart sickness, of sadness, because I know this isn't ultimately what I'm hoping for. But when I taste that longing, when I experience it, it's a tree of life. Only in Proverbs, only in Genesis, only in Revelation is this metaphor for the tree of life. What is the tree of life about? It's about the Garden of Eden, and it's about the garden in the center of this new city that is coming, in the new heavens and the new earth. So in this life, we are, with that future hope, we are waiting, which is difficult. I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. Waiting is hard. It's hard on the heart, and oftentimes, I don't wait well. I get tired of waiting, and I try to manufacture elements of this perfection that we just read about in Revelation 21 now. I go to false trees of life that can't deliver and often those things buckle. They're good things. They buckle under the weight of the expectation that I bring to them. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his book. If you have never read it, I would encourage you to read it. The Weight of Glory. And he says this. He says, on speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, this desire for our own far-off country, this day to come, which we find in ourselves now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia, romanticism, and adolescence. He goes on to say, we cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience and we cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our most common expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, 
are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are not. They are only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited yet. What is Lewis saying? What's your heart saying to you? What he's saying is the things of this life and all of their created goodness, and they are good, though they're fallen, they are still only a hint of what lies ahead. The best job, the best family, the best relationships, the best marriage, the best church, the best fill in the blank. These are still only a fraction. They're a, they're a, they're a cloudy picture of what lies ahead for us. Because what lies ahead is a place where sin and when, where death are no more, where life with God in perfection fully arrives. That's the hope that you have if you're in Christ this morning. That's the future that you have because of the gospel. And when we say hope in the Christian life, we're not talking about hope the way that we talk about hope in today's world. Like, man, I hope that happens. I'm like wishful thinking. Hope in scripture is certainty by faith in a future that is promised by God and in the meal that we'll celebrate here in communion, it's secured by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is going to happen. And I'd like for us to think that the more familiar that you and I get with this hope, with this future, the more that it moves out of some kind of subconscious place to a conscious place, or some unarticulated place to an articulate place, the more familiar we get with that hope and that future, the more it changes how we live our lives today. Because if this future is true, then it frames everything from my life today. All of my life is lived in light of this. It gives my life purpose, it gives my life meaning, it gives me the capacity to understand suffering in the world and engage with it. It gives context for my desires and how I have them and how I express them and what their aim and their goal is, all of it. But there's a danger if you aren't living aware of this day. And if you aren't living, I mean, C.S. Lewis, he wrote that, that article or that essay called The Weight of Glory. I call it The Weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, of the weight, W-A-I-T. If you aren't aware of the weight of waiting, that your soul is pregnant with the anticipation of this day, you will, I will, I do spend most of my life trying to squeeze this moment out of things and out of people that cannot deliver this. Good things, beautiful things, created things. I will try to get this moment out of those things and I destroy them. Talk to every girl I dated before my wife who I was hoping was gonna be Jesus and deliver, right? So let's look briefly in the text here at some of the key truths about this future that is guaranteed for us in Christ, all right? Three things if you're a note taker. That was kind of a long preamble. We're getting there, hang on. 
new, near, and now, okay? If you're note-taking type, I want you to write down those three words, new, near, now, all right? First thing about this day in Revelation about our future, verse five, he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Did I, I just created envy in y'all, didn't I, when I opened that? Like, please give me a LaCroix right now. Let me taste it real quick. I'll tell you how it tastes. Yeah, it's so good. Behold, I'm making everything new. All new things. Now, most people, this is the aspect of heaven or eternity that I find that most people are familiar with this concept or this idea, all new things. And I think it's the, the part of it that appeals to our hearts the most. And why is this is because in this life, nothing new stays new, does it? Anything that's new gets old. Uh, eventually what's clean becomes dirty. I'm the guy who every time I buy a new shirt, somehow I always end up eating a salad that day and somehow I get oil from the salad dressing on my new shirt and immediately my new shirt is not a new shirt. It's a shirt with a giant oil stain on it, right? Everything that's clean becomes dirty, that's worn. We have a, we have a river, that, our creek, that turns into a river when it floods in Nashville in our backyard and our neighbors, we have bridges that go over this creek. And it took them like two years since the last flood to have this bridge rebuilt. They rebuilt the bridge. It just got finished like maybe a month ago. And I guess the storm went through Nashville. I was walking down through our backyard yesterday and there's a tree that has fallen through the center of it and it's in the, in the creek again. Literally, it's like this brand new thing that we just invested a ton of money already destroyed. Everything new. Everything in all of creation, Romans 8, is in bondage to decay. And even though we know that, we still go in search of, of new things. I love new things. I, I do retail therapy, right? I love, you guys know what retail therapy is, right? Like when I, I'm just feeling like all of my clothes, even though they're perfectly fine, it's like, I think I need something new right now. I want something new. And we should, we should lean into that because that desire, it's, it's what we were talking about earlier. It's really pointing to this moment when all things will be made new. We know there's something about this, that this is what we were made for. When things will not age, when things will not decay, when things won't wear out, won't die, but everything will be whole and will be perfect and will be pure and will be incorruptible and unlosable and eternal. I mean, it's hard to even fathom that. It actually takes time meditating to consider because everything in our experience suggests otherwise. That's not possible. But that's what he who is seated on the throne is saying. I'm making everything new. And here's the focus of the new. There's a bunch of no's in this passage. It doesn't paint a whole lot of picture of what exactly is gonna be new, but he says this. He's gonna wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning. There will no be, be no more crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then he says, 
uh, in verse 21, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away in this new heavens and new earth, and there was no longer any sea. So no more death, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. I'm like, yes, 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 because if you turn on the news, that's all we see, right? That is the world we live in. And then you get to no more sea, which if you're an ocean lover like me, I'm like, hey, wait a sec. Uh, I, what does that actually mean? The audience of Revelation in that day, this, this genre is apocalyptic prophecy and it's poetry in many ways. The sea in that day was a metaphor that represented basically chaos in life. The sea was a place of danger. The sea was a place of death. It's another way of saying no more death, no more tears. No more crying, no more mourning. I don't know about you if you've ever been out to sea in a boat, even on a relatively calm day. When you're really out to sea, it can make you feel very small and very insecure, can it? So when it's saying no more sea, it's not saying there won't be any water in heaven. It's saying that in heaven, there will be no more disorder. There will be no more chaos. There will be no more death. You won't have to be afraid anymore. All things that God has made will be made new. It is creation recreated. No longer a fallen creation, but a flying creation. I don't know if you've ever read this, but a city coming down out of heaven. It's a picture that all of creation that has been impacted by sin's curse, everything is gonna be restored, renewed, and resurrected. How? He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Write this down. It's trustworthy and it's true. How's it gonna happen? He's gonna do it. This is God promising something to us. And what the promises of God are for us is that they're like anchors for the soul when you're in the middle of the surface storms of life. If you don't know the promises of God, if you don't have those things as anchors for your soul, it's literally like being a boat out at sea blown around. Because life is full of death, life is full of tears, life is full of mourning, life is full of pain. The church in Revelation that this was being written to, they were under great persecution at the time. And he's saying, pick your heads up, this isn't the end, church in Revelation. I'm making all things new. And why? Because I'm the one on the throne. I have the authority and the capacity to do so. I have to make all things new because you can't. Why things need to be made new is because when mankind, all the way back in that first garden, attempted to climb up on the throne of their lives in the Garden of Eden and say, we'll be in charge, the world at that point was thrown into disorder. Death, decay, sin. The Lord's saying, I have to make things new because you can't make things new. But I've come to do it. That's what we celebrate when we come to this table in communion. So all things are gonna be made new, but honestly, that's still not the best part of the future. Although, it's where most people leave off, myself included. I was really convicted about this this week as I was praying and preparing. The central image that's being put forth here in this text is not just that all things will be made new, but who is drawing near in this moment? Who are we going to be with? 
who's not new. But scripture says is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So all things will be made new, but who is drawing near? This is the thing that for the audience of the day would have blown their mind. Verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Lots of metaphors and language in here, right? Wedding language, right? New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride dressed for her husband. There's bride and groom, there's dwelling together. They will be his, he will be theirs. There will be no more darkness, there will be light. There's not gonna be any more gates, which is basically like saying you can live with your doors unlocked in this city, right? It's gonna be a safe place. But the, the biggest metaphor here that would have rocked people's worlds who were the original readers was they don't see a temple. There's no temple in the city. And they could not imagine, a Jewish, you know, first century Jewish mind could not imagine a city without a temple at the center. So it'd be like having no rose pepper cantina in East Nashville, right? We just can't imagine that, could we? They don't see a temple. Why is that significant? For the audience of the day, the temple, what the temple was at that time was the place where the presence of God was made manifest on earth. The temple was where God dwelled with his people on earth. But if you know anything about the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was only one person who got to go into the Holy of Holies and that only one day a year on the Day of Atonement and they had to do all of these crazy sacrifices for the people's sins. So only one person one day a year got to go into the presence of God. So when it says God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them, and when it says, I do not see a temple in the city, for the Lord all God Almighty is, and the Lamb are its temple, what it's saying is this. There is no more temple, there is no more holy of holies, there is no more intricate sacrificial system, no more temple at all, and guess what? Open for business. Not just one person, one time of year. God is going to dwell with all of us. There's no separation, there's no distance, there is no space. The whole city is the temple, is what he's saying here. Here's where it convicted me. When I hear people talk about heaven, which is something people don't talk about a whole lot, including me, I never hear people talk about being with Jesus in heaven. I never hear him talk about this part of it. Like I was helping my daughter, I have a four-year-old daughter go to the bathroom the other day and we were, she was sitting there using the restroom and she said, out of the blue, we're all gonna die, right, dad? And I was like, just use the restroom, honey. <laughs> I was like, yeah? And she goes, but then we'll get to see Bella, right? Which is our lab. I said, yeah, and she goes, and, and mommy's dog, Hunter, right? Yeah and granddaddy Pete, right? And we go through the whole list of all the people. All, that's the all things new, 
part of this passage, right? And it's true. But my little girl and me, it convicted me, no Jesus. No talking about dwelling face to face with our creator. And yet the fullest image here is that, to dwell with Jesus. That he's the one, there's no need for a temple because the whole city's a temple and he's there, right? He's at the center, he's on the throne. And here's my thought, or at least this is what the Lord convicted me with. Maybe this is why I stop when I think about the future at all things new, or maybe why I don't even ponder heaven all that much at all, is because it's almost impossible to imagine a future where I'm not at the center and I'm not the focus. Where my glory, where my accomplishments, where my stuff, where my status isn't the focus of my life. Because this heaven, the real one, I won't be at the center. Jesus will. And here on earth, we're more like the Belinda Carlisles, right? Ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Do you guys even know that song? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. No, it's not. But that's the argument of the song, right? We'll make heaven a place on earth. I don't have to wait for today. Because here, I get to be at the center and I get to be the focus. I'm actually supported in that idea. I'm implored to be the focus of my life. Even in my relationship with Jesus, even in my religion, it's about me. About my peace, my joy. We ask people these questions. How's your walk with the Lord? Right? You see it? It's subtle, but even my relationship with the Lord can still be about me. It's all about a means to an end. He's just a means to an end rather than he's the end that all of my means are grasping for. But in heaven, you and I, we will not be the focus. And would you dare to believe that it's possible that you were never created to be? That's what sin has done to you and done to me. It's made us the center. And it's often why our lives are a living hell. The word the center. I'm at the center of my life. I mean, you could make this argument that the world is one big fight right now for power and being at the center. Who gets to be at the center? And yet, this image given to us by God through John is one where the ultimate reality of the new future is not where just mankind's relationship to all created things is perfect and whole, but where we're face to face with the one who has done it, God, in Christ. And I just, it challenged me and I'm challenging y'all. I know this is kind of like, wow. But if you aren't pondering or enthralled or imagining that aspect of your future, then you might be imagining an eternity that is not real. Because Jesus is gonna be at the center in heaven. It's where God draws near and he's at his rightful place at the center and he upholds and sustains and makes everything new. So if all that's true, what about now? Okay, I gotta say this and then I gotta go drive across the city and not get a speeding ticket in the process. There's somebody on Eastland, there's a cop hiding. He's like tucked back in there. He's like, 
dude, I got to remember you on the way out of here. So if that's true, all things are new and he's going to draw near. What about now? Because Revelation wasn't just written to kind of inspire us. It wasn't written as some kind of opiate for us to just kind of now live so heavenly minded that we're earthly useless. I mean, people would argue that about religion, about Christianity. It's just all about the future, so you don't really care about now. That's not true. How should this certain future frame our here and now? And how do we bring the future into the present? Well, just one thing I I want you to consider, this is how you do it. I'm just giving you some very, very practical advice. He says there in, in verse 21, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So he's he's giving him this vision, but he's saying, I want you to write it down. These things are trustworthy and true. Just the next chapter, it's the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22 says, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy written in this scroll, who keeps the words of the prophecy written in the scroll. What does that mean to keep the words? Write it down, but then keep them. Right? Well, I would argue this, that even secular gurus, people like Tony Robbins, understand what keep the words means. Tony Robbins said this famously, he says, what you focus on is what you feel, and what you feel will be your experience of life. So what you give your attention to is what you will feel, and what you feel, it will determine everything about your life. Or Snickers, right? They've got us on this one. What you feed on while you wait affects what you become, right? You're not yourself, right? Have a Snickers, well, unless a Snickers isn't what you're supposed to have. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecies written in the scroll. How we begin to bring the truth of that eternity into the present is as I have to write these things down, I keep the words, I feed on these words. It's what we do when we come to the table. That's why he says, do it often. Feed on these things in remembrance of me. Because he's not just given us words, he's given us the Holy Spirit to take these words. It's literally like when you put Mentos into Coke. Have you ever seen that experiment? You take these two things and you combine them and it's explosive, right? He's given us this new spirit to take these words and make them not just black ink on white pages, as my Irish friend says. The living Jesus, the living truth. He causes these truths to come awake, to be real for us, to be strength for us, to guide us, to comfort us, to sustain us in a world that suggests everything about this day is not true and it's not coming. Life is about death and sadness and pain and loss and decay. And if that's all I focus on, if I never focus on this, if I never keep these words and am kept by these words, then I inevitably become discouraged, despairing, and even doubtful. Are you trustworthy? Are you true? Blessed is the one who keeps the words. It blesses your life because these words are true. It's why Paul says in Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received from me, put it into practice and the peace of God will be with you. When you keep the words, it brings the peace of God, literally the peace of this future into our lives and then we are set free to bring peace into this life. Let me tell you who we become as the church. We become tear wipers. 
We bring the future tear wiping into the present. We bring life where there's only death. We bring joy where there's only sorrow. We bring hope where there's only despair. We bring light when there's only darkness. We bring truth where there's only falsehood and lies. We are the ambassadors of the embassy of heaven now. We're the living foretaste of the future that is to come. And we reflect what it looks like when Jesus is on the throne and at the center, not us. If there's anything the world needs to see, it's that, y'all. Christians are people who don't orbit around them. They orbit around something else. So let's prepare to come to the table. Tyler, we want to come on up. You guys should have your elements. Because if you're in Christ this morning, uh, it says this in Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's one of these things that's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. There's going to be this giant wedding feast where we, the bride and the bridegroom, are going to be united. He says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. So if you're in Christ this morning, here in a second, Tyler's going to pray for us, and then you're going to take those elements at your own pace. They're going to lead you guys in some worship, and I would really encourage you, use this time as a time of prayer, as a time of confession. Ask the Lord to reveal himself to you and this truth to you. But if you're in Christ, the future that we just talked about, it's yours. And communion, it's literally like hors d'oeuvres for the wedding feast that is to come. And so you, you eat on that knowing there's gonna be a meal that will never end. If you're not in Christ this morning, I would encourage you, would you dare to believe that all of your hope and all of your desire and all of your longing that gets attached to things in this world ultimately is about him? And would you come to faith in him this morning before you come to the meal that says you have faith in him? But Paul also invites us to examine ourselves in 1 Corinthians 11. And maybe it's a place where, like I was confronted with this week, where you've traded the glory of this day for something smaller. And you're trying to get the glory of this day in this life. And things have become idols, like Lewis talked about. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to lay down some of those this morning and receive what the Lord has for you. All right? I'm going to read the words of institution and then Tyler will pray and I'll disappear. Thanks for uh, letting me be here with you guys this morning. 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're making all things new. And we confess to you this morning that we love making uh, ourselves the center of our universe and the center of our orbit. We pray that you would come into our hearts and into our lives um, and reorder our hearts to orbit around you and to love orbiting around you. Um, we thank you for all that you've done in our lives um, and all that you will do. Um, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. And if you missed getting the elements as you came in, feel free. There's some in the room 
by the front door. You can go grab some during this time. We're going to take two songs and just you can have some time with the Lord and um, take them at your own uh, leisure. Sing before the throne. Before the throne of God on birth, I have a strong and perfect King, the great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. tongue can bid me let's depart no tongue can bid me let's depart Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward I love can see a sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and Great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is in with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and one with himself. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is in with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. And oh, 
precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fountain no nothing but the blood of Jesus and for my part in this I see nothing but the blood of Jesus for my cleansing this my plea nothing but the blood of Jesus and oh precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fountain I know nothing but the blood of Jesus nothing can and nothing can for sin atone nothing but the blood of Jesus not of good that I have done nothing but the blood of Jesus and oh precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fountain no nothing but the blood of Jesus. And this is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no. But the blood of Jesus And oh precious is the flow That makes me white as snow No other fountain, no Nothing but the blood of Jesus Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Would you all stand, join us for this last song.
He's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. And every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before you. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. His blood breaks the chains, and every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Oh, every knee will bow before Him. So open up the gates, make way before the King of Kings. Our God who calls us safe is here to set the captives free. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before you. slain for the sin of the world his blood breaks the chains and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb oh every knee will bow before him who can stop the lord almighty who can stop the lord almighty who can stop the Lord Almighty? And who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before you. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. His blood breaks the chains. And every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Oh, every knee will bow before Him. Jesus, thank you that you are the Lion and the Lamb. And um, we thank you that no matter um, how weak we are, um, 
how distraught we are. No matter where any of us are this morning, we thank you that um, the gospel means that um, you paid the price for our sins when we couldn't, God, and um, that you're calling us to yourself. So we thank you for these truths. We pray that we would live out of them this week. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all can have a seat. And um, I'm going to give you just a few announcements we got this morning. Um, So if you're new this morning, first of all, welcome. Thank you for coming. And we're glad you're here. Um, You can take out your phone and um, scan this QR code to get some info um, just on being new to Midtown, um, some of the events we have coming up that sort of thing. So feel free to take out your phone, snag that QR code. Um, We got a couple things coming up this week. Um, Men's night is on Thursday at 6.30. Uh, Straight chillin' part two, part deuce, I guess is what we're calling it. Um, And that's at Sam Marshall's house. He's in the back. Um, The address is up there, 1211 Basketball Street. Um, This is just a time to come hang with other guys. have some community and and get to know some people on a deeper level. Um, And we're going to be grilling out, so don't miss it. Um, Secondly, there is a campus-wide worship night on Wednesday uh, from 7 to 8.30. So I'm going to be there. Some of the other worship leaders at some of our other campuses are going to be there. Um, Actually, Taylor Kelly, who's our youth leader, and he he comes to Midtown East, is going to be there as well. Um, and this is just a time um, for refreshment for your soul. So um, if you're wanting to just come and, um, and just soak in the presence of the Lord, um, we're going to be singing like 10 to 12 songs, and um, it'll just be a good time to, to reconnect and um, to get filled up. So um, is it for kids? It's for all ages. Yes. Hope to see you there. Um, All right, and then lastly, we've got coffee in the fellowship hall, which is um, if you go outside, take a left toward the parking lot, uh, you'll kind of loop around and go down into the basement. So um, feel free to go grab some coffee um, and uh, say hey to uh, some of our friends. So um, we're going to end. If you could stand one more time, we're going to do the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Go in peace. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Oh
on his own.